So we are going to uh, continue our march through the book of Mark. Uh, we have finished 10 chapters, and it only took us probably 10 months. I think we're moving pretty good. Uh, so we are starting in Mark chapter 11. Uh, this is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' first life here on earth. It, it kept going, but it ended at one point, just briefly. Uh, and this is the beginning of that final week of his ministry here on earth. So starting in Mark chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you'll find a donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back right away. So they went and found a young donkey outside in the street, tied by the door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the donkey? And they answered, Just as Jesus had said. So they let them go. Then they brought the donkey to Jesus, and they threw their robes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their robes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna! He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, so this story, I don't know if you caught it, has what I would call the most faith-filled act in all of the book of Mark. Like the, the, the thing that would take the most faith out of everything we've read in 10 full chapters of Mark so far, did you catch it? Go steal me a donkey. Let's read it again, starting in verse one. He sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on, uh, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back right away. So they went and found the young donkey outside in the street, tied to the door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the donkey? And they answered them just as Jesus said, so they let them go. Think about this. They're, they're making their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus has been giving some pretty dire warnings about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And we know the disciples have been kind of confused and haven't really been, been understanding everything that Jesus was saying. So now they get up there and they can see Jerusalem. And Jesus says, all right, boys, so before we enter, you two, go steal me a donkey. I want you to walk into town and you will find a donkey tied to the door at someone's house. I want you to untie it and bring me that donkey. And don't worry, if they ask you, what are you doing? Just tell them the Lord needs it and it'll be okay. Put yourself in that situation. Walking with Jesus and he says, go steal me a car. But, okay, it's a donkey. Go steal me a truck. Bring it back to me. I need it for something. You're going to have some questions, right? Jesus, whoa, 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 whoa. What if, what if I get caught? What if people see me? It's okay. Just tell them the Lord needs it. Are you kidding me, Jesus? What were the two guys, 
crucified next to Jesus on his left and his right, what, what were they in for? Does anyone remember? They were thieves. And they were crucified with Jesus. Stealing a donkey wasn't a slap on the wrist offense. You died for things like that. Animals were highly valued property. This was like a death penalty type offense. And Jesus says, don't worry, I got you. I've worked it all out. You don't see it from where you're standing, but trust me. Go get me a donkey. And if anyone asks, just tell them the Lord sent you. Like, did they sneak? You know what I mean? Like when Jesus gives you this kind of command and says, don't worry, I got you. And he says, even if people see you, but do you still kind of sneak anyway? You know what I mean? Like maybe we, maybe we should wait until dark. Well, no, he'll know that we weren't obeying and he'll be mad. Let's just try to like walk real low and kind of skulk in. Or do you just walk in brazen? Ah, just doing what Jesus said. Like, hey, everybody, I'm taking this donkey. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know how you approach this. Go steal me a ride. But here's the point of this tiny little story that's just thrown in there. What do we do when the Lord's directions don't make sense? What do you do when you're the guy who lives in Jerusalem and maybe the Lord says to you, hey, some people are coming to take your donkey today. Let them have it. What? Just strangers are going to walk up and take my donkey and I'm just supposed to say, no problem? What do you do when Jesus tells you, go steal me a ride? Don't worry, I've taken care of it. And to be clear, I don't think Jesus is going to call any of us to to boost a car at any point in time in our life. This was a specific circumstance that he was working. But when Jesus calls you to do something that doesn't make sense and says, trust me, I've taken care of it. Will our faith stand up to that? Or will we, like I probably would have done if I was the disciples gone, Jesus, you're asking too much. You haven't thought this through. Let me give you a list of reasons why what you're saying doesn't make sense. It actually goes against what you've told me previously. I'm probably going to have to say no on this one, Jesus. Would your faith stand up to it when Jesus calls you to do something? Because he will, and he probably already has, that makes no earthly sense to you. Do we trust that he has worked things out? Do we trust him enough to say, yes, Lord? What was it again? I'm I'm already in before I even hear the end of what you're calling me to. A, A donkey, was it? Would we have the kind of faith, simple faith, that these two disciples had? I mean, this is one of the most daring stories. They risked death. They risked crucifixion to bring Jesus a donkey. It's a crazy story that we just kind of blow over. But they had the faith that said, if this is what my Lord calls me to do, I trust that he's taking care of it. The one thing they know after three and a half years walking with Jesus is I can trust him. So, okay, let's go get him a donkey. So they walk in, they untie the donkey, and just like Jesus said, somebody goes, what are you doing? Taking the donkey. The Lord needs it, and he'll send it right back. Okay, enjoy the donkey. They, I mean, they, they had to come back being like, guys, it was crazy. I thought we were done for sure. When the guy poked his head out and said, what are you doing? I was like, we're caught. Is he going to call like the Roman centurions in? Like, what's going to happen? But we did what Jesus said, and here we are. So they bring Jesus this donkey in what I think is one of the most daring stories in the Gospels. It seems commonplace, but it would be so hard. So picking up in verse 7, Then they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their robes on it, and he sat on it. 
Many people spread their robes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed behind kept shouting, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is a story that we celebrate on Palm Sunday, uh, the Sunday before Easter, the week leading up to Jesus when we remember his death and his resurrection. Because as Jesus was entering Jerusalem, they were cutting palm branches and laying them down. This is a slice of Jesus' story that feels right to us. There's a whole lot of the Gospels that we read, and it just feels off. It's not what we would have expected. It's not what we heard in Sunday school. There's this constant conflict and plots coming against Jesus. And we read it and we go, what are you doing? He's Jesus. Why would you come against him? And it's hard for us to reconcile. We see Jesus going through hardships constantly on the move, uh, in the desert, fasting for 40 days. And we're like, this is Jesus. Like, why is this hard for him? We see his reactions to some people, and it's not what we would expect. We've read a number of stories where we go, whoa, that feels kind of harsh, Jesus. That's not how I expected you to answer We hear difficult teachings of Jesus. It seems every time there's a large crowd that starts to gather Jesus, he thins the herd. He turns and he goes, oh, you want to follow me? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And we watch the people go too hard and walk away. And we go, Jesus, what are you doing? You had a crowd. Isn't that the point? We read the stories of the gospel and it's so contrary to what we expect sometimes, that when we come across the triumphal entry, there's something where we go, "Ah, Jesus being celebrated as the Messiah. This feels right. This feels like what should happen when Jesus walks into a city. Even the donkey that he's riding on shouldn't be allowed to touch the dirt. Let's take off our robes and put them down. Let's get palm branches and put them down. This is it's very reminiscent of what would happen when like King David entered Jerusalem. There was a, a large processional and singing and dancing, and it was very celebratory. And what we find here is for the first time publicly, Jesus allows himself to be celebrated as the Messiah. You see, we found when we were back in Mark 8, there was this pivotal story where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say a prophet, some say Isaiah, some say you're John the Baptist. We don't know. People think you're cool, but they're they're confused. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? And they say, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, keep this to yourself. You're, You're absolutely right, but keep this to yourself. It's not time for this yet. And now finally, for the first time, We see Jesus being celebrated as Messiah. When they're singing Hosanna, they're singing blessed be. And listen to to what they say about him. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Do you know what another translation for the blessed one is? Messiah, the anointed one of God. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom that we have been waiting for for hundreds of years since David was here. The the promised kingdom that God brought to to David, Jesus is fulfilling. That's what the people are shouting from the rooftops. And it feels so right. 
finally something that makes sense in, in the Gospels. There's so much that we have to go, okay, wait, but what did it mean? And why would he say it like that? This is one that we read and we just go, this story is told over and over again because it just feels right to us. And so he comes in verse 11. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple complex. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Store this little piece away. This isn't a throwaway verse. This isn't just, well, we had to tell him he got out of the city somehow. There's some important pieces here that we're going to come back to. Jesus, he took a look around Jerusalem. He kind of surveyed it and said, let's come back tomorrow. So they leave and they go out to Bethany with his disciples Picking up in verse 12. Then the next day, when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Skipping down to verse 20, this is the following day. Early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. In case you were getting used to this Jesus that makes sense, he curses a tree. We go from this triumphal entry, this the Messiah is here, yes, the coming king, let's do it, to Jesus walking up to a tree out of season and cursing it for it not having fruit. And we're back to, what? What, what are you doing Jesus. Think about this. So, so his disciples, they've just walked with him in the triumphal entry. They've walked through the city and people were probably still cheering and, and making way. There goes Jesus. The Messiah is here. They go to bed. They wake up the next morning and as they're coming into Jerusalem, the disciples have to have an idea of we're going to have another one of those days. People are going to be coming out and cheering and probably like throwing flowers at Jesus and it's going to be a cool day. But it takes a little turn. On their way to Jerusalem, Jesus turns off the path and he walks out to this distant tree. And the disciples follow him because that's what they did. They followed Jesus. We're going to Jerusalem. He, he turns, they turn. So they come up to this tree and they just see, see Jesus look at the tree and say, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then turns and heads back into Jerusalem. They have to be going, we lost it again. We, what, what is happening? Why would he curse this tree? Jesus has, has never actually cursed anything up to this point. This is completely out of character. This is the only quote-unquote negative miracle that we have in the Gospels. This is out of character for Jesus, and their head has to just kind of be swimming. But Jesus was trying to teach them something through this tree. You see, Jesus didn't just seek out any tree. It says he saw the tree from a distance. And what did he notice about it? You can speak a little bit. Leaves. He noticed that this tree was full of leaves, which means the other fig trees around it did not have leaves because it wasn't the season for figs yet. But there's this one tree, this early bloomer, that has leaves to the point where it catches Jesus' notice from a distance. And so he walks over to this tree. This tree was promising fruit by its leaves. The, the presence of leaves was an indication there should be fruit. 
even though it's out of season, if there's leaves, there should be fruit. That's how fig trees work. We don't grow them around here, but that's what I'm told. If you see leaves, there should be fruit. It was boasting fruit. It was saying, if you're hungry, come to me. I have what you need. And as Jesus comes to it, he finds out it was lying. It had leaves, but no fruit. What it was boasting, it wasn't backing up. What it was promising, it was under-delivering. You see, because Jesus wasn't hangry. It's not just that he was so hungry that morning, he would even curse a tree. This was an illustration. Jesus was trying to show his disciples something that he had taught them through stories many times, and he was trying to give them a hands-on illustration that they would always remember. It wasn't just, but what did he say? It was, no, he cursed that tree and we saw it die. This was a, a very clear illustration for them. Because Jesus talks a lot about fruit. Every time Jesus mentions fruit, we need to pay attention. Let's look at a couple of them. Uh, over in the book of Matthew, earlier in Jesus' ministry, he says this. He's actually speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. And he says, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now, the axe is ready to strike at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus is warning Israel against just resting against their nationality. But my father followed God and his father followed God. I'm in just because I'm here. Being a descendant of Abraham isn't enough for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was saying, what fruit are you bearing? Just being Jewish was never enough. Produce fruit in consistence with repentance. They had to bear fruit. Just standing up and saying, we're God's chosen people, didn't cut it. Later, over in Matthew chapter 7, he's teaching his disciples and he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inward, inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus is warning his followers beyond the lookout for fruit. Beware of those that claim to be sheep, that promise one thing, but don't have fruit that matches you'll recognize them by their fruit. And what is the fruit that they were supposed to look for at the very end? Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Just calling yourself a sheep, just calling yourself a follower of Jesus, or in their day, just calling yourself an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, did not give you automatic entrance. Jesus said, watch for the fruit. Are they obedient are they following where I lead? Are they listening to my call? Are they obedient to my Father's instruction? Do they do the will of my Father in heaven? 
without that fruit, he says it's a bad tree about to get cut down and burned. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Much like his other teachings about fruit, he was teaching his disciples, look for fruit. The fig tree was boasting fruit, but actually had nothing to offer. In context of this story of Jesus' last week of ministry heading into Jerusalem, he was actually trying to teach them about Israel's current condition. They were boasting about being God's people, but they had no fruit to show for it. Look, we're going to look at the story that follows. Both Mark and Matthew tie these stories together because Jesus is tying together what happened with the fig tree and what comes next. So they came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods into the temple complex. Then he began to teach them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. So Jesus comes and he curses this tree and his disciples are like going, what, what is happening here? And he says, let me illustrate it again. Follow me into the temple. So they walk into the temple and Jesus truly becomes enraged. I mean, it's hard for us to really picture Jesus flipping tables. There's another account in John where it says he made a cord of whips and began chasing people out, throwing money tables out, breaking cages that had it like just truly going ham. It's hard for us to even really picture how many of you guys have ever seen like a Jesus film kind of idea? Most of those, they try to capture it, but they still want to be really reverent. And so Jesus is like, get over table. And he like pushes two tables over and people are like, oh, and run out. And it's pretty weak. This was a massive area. We're going to look in a couple minutes at like kind of a map of the temple or a picture of the temple. This was a massive area that one man cleared which means his explosion of anger was fierce. There, there's one video that, that I found on YouTube, and we'll, we'll play a, a short clip of here in a moment, that shows kind of the, the rage of Jesus. It does a decent job of capturing it. Both of these stories, the fig tree and the temple, seem really out of character for Jesus, which for some people means we should just write them off. They're kind of these weird anomalies. He had a bad day or whatever. But what it should show us is this is something that he cares about so greatly that when it was offended, his anger, his wrath came out. We don't see the wrath of Jesus in any other situation, but there was something about this one that brought it out. Chris, go ahead and play that video. You can start to see from that video, again, this wasn't just a, a pleasant little, hey guys, come on, quit it that oftentimes gets attributed to Jesus, his wrath came out because of what he saw happening in the temple. And it's hard for us to reconcile 
this Jesus that preaches peace, this Jesus that's have faith in me and let's go seek the one lamb that is lost to leave the 99 and then seeing Jesus flip his wig, chasing people out in, in a show of violent force. We should pause and go, this, this is a big deal. This is not just a story to get written off, oh, bad day. This is an explosion of something that shows us this cut him deep, what he saw there. So Jesus curses the figless tree and his disciples are confused. And it's almost as if Jesus says, let me show you what this means. Follow me to the temple. Remember that verse that uh, after the triumphal entry where it said he went in and he looked around the temple complex and then went out. The, the temple bookends this story of the fig tree. He saw what he hated, what he would curse. And he illustrated it through the tree. And when his disciples don't get it, he goes, let me show you what it means. Let me show you what it means to be a tree with leaves boasting life, but bearing no fruit. Follow me to the temple. You see, the temple would have been the heart of Judaism. The Jews at the time would have said that the temple was the heart of God's kingdom on earth. It was the center of everything they believed. And Jesus said, let me show you what is so wrong with it. There, there were two major temple offenses that were happening at the time. These two offenses were stopping the growth of fruit in Jerusalem and in all of Israel. The first one that we see here that Jesus calls out is the robbing of Israel. The temple had become a massive moneymaker for the religious leaders. Like they would hire private armies to walk their gold from city to city. There was that much of it. They were becoming increasingly wealthy. So while the religious leaders were making money truly hand over fist, Religion had become an incredible hardship for God's people. The people were footing the bill. Uh, there was this idea, you, uh, you see Jesus flipping over the tables of the money changers. What they had done in an attempt to make more money for themselves is they said, from now on at the temple, we will only accept a temple coin. They, they minted it themselves because money back then wasn't the same as it is for us. It was actual silver. It was actual whatever. And it was not all the same size. It was not all the same weight. Every country's money was different. And even within those countries, you may have one coin that's a little bigger, one that's a little smaller. Like, so it was kind of this, it was all different for everybody. And so the temple said, we'll make it uniform. We're going to make a temple coin. We only accept this one coin, and they're all the same. That way, there's no, well, we have to weigh everything and figure it out. It'll be simpler this way. And so they made this temple coin, but the problem is the only place you could get the temple coin was from the temple, which means you had to bring your money from wherever you lived, because this being the Passover, people were coming from all over the world to Jerusalem, and they had to bring whatever money they had, and they had to exchange it. Okay, well, I'll give you uh, one temple coin is two denarii or whatever it is. That's probably way too much. I don't know what they would do. But there was this system that they would use to exchange. You give me this much of your foreign currency, and I'll give you this much temple coin. And the longer this went on, the more expensive the temple coins became. The more the religious elite began to rip off 
those that were at their mercy. Because here's the thing, they made the rules. And if you want to worship God, God now only accepts temple coin, would have been what they told people. And you got to get that from us. And therefore, whatever price I set, you have to pay if you want to worship your God. And the people were held captive by this. And the rates just kept going up and up and up. And there was nothing else they could do. This was the only place that God lived on earth. This was the only way they had to worship and celebrate their God. And their religious leaders were taking advantage of them. Then there's the issue of what they were selling to them. You saw in the the video there, they would sell doves, they would sell goats, they would sell all these animals because a huge part of temple worship was sacrifice. You brought sacrifices and brought them before the Lord. And there was things, there were certain things that you offered if you had committed sin. There were certain things that you offered just as a thanksgiving to God. There were certain things that you offered as like a fellowship offering. God, you and me are tight. But when you came from, let's say, Rome, you couldn't bring a couple goats and some birds with you. The journey was too far. It was too expensive. You couldn't bring your own sacrifices. And so the temple said, you know, let us help you out. For your convenience, we'll provide animals for you. You don't have to bring your own. You can just come buy them from us. But again, they had the people captive, and all of a sudden, the cost of these sacrifices, the cost of these animals, began to skyrocket. Because what else are they going to do? They can't go anywhere else. We can charge them whatever we want. And so the people that were supposed to be leading Israel into righteousness and holiness, leading them in the way of God, were instead using them exacting insane prices for the items truly necessary for worship. These weren't, if you can afford it, buy them. These were, if you want to worship God, you need this. You see, God had always made worship incredibly affordable. If you go back and you read through the books of the law in the Old Testament, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend you just flip through them because it's fun, but there's some really useful things in there, and one of which is how God always takes care of the less fortunate, of the needy. And so when he was creating the law, he said, look, if you sin against your brother, you have to bring a bull and sacrifice a bull as a way to atone for your sin. And there would have been those that first heard it and went, a bull is like half a year's wages. Like, I, I, I can't, that would crush me. And so what we see is immediately God says, but if you can't afford a bull, bring two doves. God had this scale that he had given people and he said, do the best you can, but it's not about, did you spend enough money to make me happy? God was always trying to make religion, trying to make following him as accessible as possible. And what we find here is the religious leaders putting roadblocks up in the way. And Jesus is furious. You are robbing, you're literally stealing from your brothers, from those that you have been called to love and to lead. You are stealing from them. You have turned my father's house into a den of robbers. And this infuriated Jesus. And for many, this this is looked at as kind of the, the worst offense. The fact that they were overcharging for these things and, and robbing the people of physical money 
by many is seen as like the thing that made Jesus the most mad. I would disagree. In the end, we're going to look at two in whatever order they come in. But I think the thing, the offense that got at Jesus the most was the exclusion of the nations. I think this was the worst offense that Israel had committed. This was the thing that cost Jesus to go into a rage the most was because not only were they robbing the people, were they robbing their brothers and their sisters, they were excluding all Gentiles from worship. And if you're not familiar with the term Gentiles, it simply means everyone in the world that wasn't Jewish. They saw the world as Jew or Gentile, us and everybody else. And God had made provisions for the everybody else to come to him and to worship him. And the Israelites were robbing the people of this. Chris, put that picture up there for me. This is a picture of like a representation of what the temple complex would have looked like in this time. In the center here is where all of the actual acts of sacrifice and worship would have taken place. Most of this, like only the priests could get into. It was a very sacred, a very holy place. In the very center was what was called the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was actually supposed to dwell. But all of this area on the outside, these were the open courts. And I think it's the right side, as we look at this picture, was called the Court of the Gentiles. This was a place created for the nations to be able to come and worship God, to come and offer sacrifices and praises to their God. And this is the place that they had set up as a marketplace instead. It wasn't that they had some marketplace out in the city and they were just, it was exorbitant prices. They had come into the very temple of God and they had taken the place that was meant for the nations to worship and they had turned it into this den of thieves, this marketplace, excluding the nations. If you weren't by birth in Israel, you had no way to come and worship God. I'm going to read a passage from Isaiah where God makes this promise to the foreigners, to the, to the nations. Isaiah 56, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, who minister to him, who love the name of Yahweh and become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and all who hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain. That's to Jerusalem. That's to the temple. And I will let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable at my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This was how God envisioned the temple. This will be a place for my chosen people Israel to worship, but as they do, they should be living such lives that it draws the nations to me, and as the nations come to me, I will accept their worship and their praise. They will have a place at my table. I will call them to my holy mountain. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. Israel was to be, as Isaiah continually refers to them, a light to all nations, a light to the Gentiles. They were called to be God's chosen people, but not just because God was selfish and he just wanted to pour out blessing on this one nation and that's it. That's how they viewed themselves and that's what it became. But God said, I'm going to make you my holy people, my chosen people, 
so that you become a light to the nations and all peoples are drawn to me because of our relationship. This was God's intent in creating this relationship with Israel in allowing a temple to be built where he would come and dwell as he would say, this way all nations will know my address and know how to find me. But Israel had instead put up roadblocks, had crowded out and had taken the place meant for the worship of the nations and turned it into this corrupt marketplace. Here they were in the middle of the Passover, the celebration of celebrations for God's people. If you were going to come to Jerusalem, if you were going to get up for one celebration, this was the one. This was the big deal every year. Here they were in the middle of this Passover. They were declaring the greatness of God and their loves for him. Leaves on a tree. Their fruit was supposed to be the nations drawn in by the light of their love for God and his love for them. Instead, they were holding the nations back and keeping them in darkness. They would be cursed just as the fig tree was. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. They went in and they saw on Sunday night, Palm Sunday night, they looked at the temple complex and Jesus said, we'll be back tomorrow. He walks them out that morning to this tree, boasting life, boasting what you need, but offering nothing. And he curses it. And he says, let me show you what this means. Look at the state of God's people. Look at their selfishness. Look at their fruitlessness. They boast, we are God's chosen holy people we have the blessings of God. God lives in our city, yet they bore no fruit of this relationship and they were cursed because of it. So what do we do with this story, this, this illustration from Jesus? Because let me tell you, the answer is not just shake your head at ancient Israel. Oh, they missed it. If I was there, it would have been different. But yeah, they were... They were just greedy, and so God judged them. But good news, he's on our side now. It's not that simple. As his church, globally, locally, even individually, we have been called, just as they were, to bear fruit. Listen to this very similar warning given to the churches at the time in the book of Revelation. This is to the church, not to Israel, not to the temple, but to his church. He says to one of them, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive. Catch this, but you're dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. It's the same tone. It's the same thing of you have leaves, but you don't have fruit. You have this reputation. You boast that man, me and Jesus are tight, that we're his church, that we have all these blessings because we walk with him. But Jesus says, but I know there's no fruit. What you're saying and how you're living don't match. And he gives this warning, be alert, strengthen what remains, which is about to die. Don't sleep on this church. Where is your fruit? So I'm gonna ask some questions now and... 
If you're new with us, uh, I actually expect an answer. One of the things that we say here regularly is I'm not the only one uh, who can hear from the Lord, who has something that we can learn from each other. Uh, And so I'm going to ask these, and I actually want some participation. And a lot of our usual suspects who shout some things out aren't here today. Uh, So there's very little to hide behind. So I'm going to ask for some boldness here. But let me ask this question. What is the fruit that we have been called to bear? And listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of open it up here for you. Might be some individual fruit, like that I specifically am supposed to bear. It might be something that we, as a church, what is the fruit that we're called to bear? Love. Yeah, love. I mean, Jesus said, look, let me sum up the entire Old Testament for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love had better be a fruit, which is evident when people look at our lives individually, corporately. Tim? Yeah, and whether you came up with that on your own or not, you're not alone in it. Um, There are many who have fallen prey to that of going, the fruit that God wants is converts, which yes and amen, but we twist that and going, so I need to go get or even trick or whatever I can to get as many people as I can because if I don't have at least 12 people, God's going to go, how dare you? That's missing it. Instead going, am I living the kind of life that draws people in? The, the fruits of the Spirit, which Tim mentioned, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I may have said gentleness twice. I, that's why I say it quick. Hopefully you won't catch it. But are these kind of fruits being born in my life? Because these are the kind of fruits that when the world sees them, they're drawn in, a light to the nations. Everything that happens from there, that's God's domain. Saved people are not my fruit, they're his. Am I bearing his fruit, which is the fruits of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, all of those. Annie, then Maverick. Yeah. Trust could be a fruit. Trust absolutely is a fruit. What's another word that we use for trust? (laughs) Faith. Faith. Good job, everyone. Faith. I mean, much like Cheryl was sharing earlier in the illustration that she used, we talked about, you know, a mustard seed of faith. And when we talked about this a couple months ago in that story where Jesus tells them, even faith is small as a mustard seed. But then he tells the story of a mustard tree. And he goes, your faith grows. Faith in the kingdom should be growing. It shouldn't remain a seed. When you see me moving and working, your faith grows. So faith is absolutely a fruit to the point where Jesus says, go steal me a donkey and we don't bat an eye. Absolutely. Maverick. Generosity. That's my boy. Are we growing in generosity? 
there, I have a quote on my wall um, from Henry Nouwen, and he says, I know that every time I take a step, to, or every time I grow in generosity, I am moving from fear to love. For him, that was one of these markers of am I becoming more the person that God is calling me to be? Am I generous? Because I can't be fearful and selfish and generous at the same time. So I know that every time I make a move toward generosity, I am growing in love. I am moving from fear to love. What else? What about as a church? A lot of those are individual fruits, which can be translated to us as a group. Are we loving, joyful, peaceful? Absolutely. Are there other fruits? There are a lot of people who give a lot of money and are miserly with everything else, and I don't think God's going, they get it. Because let me, let me tell you, it's easier to write a check than it is to volunteer for a day. I'd rather pay for a moving company to come to your house than come help you with that piano. All day, every day. Am I, is my heart truly generous with everything that I've been given? It's not just a monetary thing. Though at the same time, you can't be greedy with money and become the generous person that God, has want, God wants you to be. But it's this whole person thing. What else? Um, 